Welcome to The Buyer's Desk, an infra podcast. We'll guide you through quick snapshots on infra trends and insights, interviews with member store buyers and brand founders, and we have curated segments from infra staff. Hey folks, and thanks for joining us on another episode of The Buyer's Desk. I am Chris Sorensen, Promotions Program Manager. And I'm Angela Bozo, Director of Member Programs, and we're back. Maybe third time's a charm. Yeah, third episode. We keep getting renewed, so something's going right. (laughs) That's awesome. I love this theme for this month in honor of Women's History Month, Women in Grocery. Angela, you have the reins on this episode, but I still get to do one of the interviews. So I I talked to Nicole Dawes from Nixie, which was a phenomenal interview. She was an absolute delight to talk to. After we stopped recording, we talked for another 40 minutes, which I really wish I would have kept the recording going. But maybe I'll drop some of the little tidbits throughout the episode. But why don't you let us know all the things you did on the episode? Well, first, thank you for the reins. I was able to pull together many women that had some retail chops. We have a lot of rad women on our staff that all have rad retail backgrounds. Oh, heck yeah. Um, so super privileged to talk to four four women. Um, you know, like your Nixie interview, it went on for a really long time. And I, I do wish <laughs> that there were additional insights we could share. But I'm, I'm really happy with how that segment came out. Um, I was also incredibly privileged and honored this month to talk to one of my favorite women in grocery, Cheryl Hughes from The Whole Weedery. Yeah, she is amazing. She's amazing. She's articulate and insightful. And I just think that member interview is fantastic. And just outside of that, we did our segment with Jim Olson, who brought his takes on women in grocery and, you know, obviously with a brand centric perspective to the party. And uh, why don't we just go ahead and kick it off with him? Hello, I'm Jim Olson, Spins Retail Insights Manager with a look at the latest sales trends impacting our industry. As we enter Women's History Month, it's important to reflect on women-owned businesses both across the greater retail industry and within our own natural food space. While women account for over 85% of all consumer purchases, women-owned businesses are still a minority on the shelves. According to New Hope Network, the women-owned label can be found on almost 200 products, which sounds like a lot, but compared to the 50,000 products available across U.S. grocery stores, it ends up being less than 0.004%. Thankfully, progress is being made within the natural food space, especially at Infra. According to SPIN's data for the most recent 52-week period, women-owned natural food brands represented $21 million in sales and saw 12% growth within Infra, a rate higher than that of the larger natural channel. One of the top-selling women-owned brands within Infra is Purely Elizabeth, a line of granolas, cereals, and baking mixes free of artificial flavors, but chock full of certifications, including gluten-free, vegan, and non-GMO project verified. First started by Elizabeth Stein in 2009, Purely Elizabeth emphasizes the importance of sustainability in food production and partners with suppliers who are, or will soon be, regenerative organic certified. Best of all, Purely Elizabeth saw 10% sales growth across Infra last year. Next up is Partake Foods, a line of allergen-free snacks and mixes started by Denise Woodward in 2016, after her daughter had difficulty avoiding allergens in store-bought treats. All Partake products are free of the top nine allergens and certified vegan, gluten-free, and kosher. 
And while their 55% sales growth at Infra is impressive, so is the company's efforts to fight food insecurity for children, as well as founding food and beverage mentorships for HBCU students. Finally, I'm very excited to highlight AO Foods, a collection of West African-inspired cuisine co-founded by Pertit Spencer, a former Spins employee. In keeping with their global focus, AO has partnered with Girl Power Africa to reserve farmland in Liberia to offer income opportunities for women and children affected by civil war. Despite being featured by Good Morning America, New Hope Network, Forbes, and the Chicago Tribune, AO is only carried by 4% of Infra members, which might change after you hear about their 38% sales growth at Infra last year. I encourage you all to consider your role in this industry and the power you have to elevate these brands and so many others as we all work to shrink this industry gender gap and give our customers an opportunity to taste their delicious creations. My thanks to New Hope Network, the Women's Business Enterprise National Council, and our distributor partners for some of the statistics shared in this piece. As always, I'll see you at the show. Hi, I'm Angela Bozo, and I'm here with Cheryl Hughes, owner of The Whole Weedery in Lancaster, California. She's here to chat with me today about grocery buying and being a woman in the grocery industry and world. Cheryl, how's it going today? You know, it's a great day out here in Lancaster. We've got some rain going on. Southern California is a happy place to be. Oh, I love that. I'm hoping we could just kick this off. Will you just tell me a little bit about kind of the arc of your career, you know, highlights about how you got to where you are right now? Well, I started back in the 80s. I worked for a company called Lindbergh Nutrition that had 13 stores and was a kingpin in Southern California. I went out on my own in 1983 and opened my store and we've been expanding and changing ever since then and growing and meeting the needs of the community. So I started out really by getting involved with the industry, sitting on boards, um, meeting other retailers, going to trade shows, establishing relationships with manufacturers, whatever it took to get myself entrenched in the industry. And do you feel like, I mean, I'm hoping the answer to this question is yes, but so from 83 to the current, how many other women were you working with then? And do you feel like you work with now? Well, it's interesting. A, a couple of things to say. I work with a lot of women um, inside the store because being a woman tends to make women apply here more frequently. For a long time, that dynamic was almost all women and there were very few men. Um, men were in the traditional grocery supermarkets, but not necessarily in the natural side. And as things have morphed over time and we've grown, we've seen a lot more males applying and we've hired them whenever we could because it's always good to have a guy around. They have a completely different perspective and they are really great to lift things and tote things and, and, you know, it's just good. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I was always fascinated with this. We've always, well, I mean, until the past couple of years, when we started really looking at customer demographics and segmentation. You know, women were traditionally always the, the people in the aisles actually making the shopping decisions. But for a long time, we were quite the minority in terms of being on the buying side. I love, though, that you make the differentiation between kind of the natural food store, maybe always being an outlier on that level. Did I, I understand that correctly? Absolutely. When I was first in the industry, I was on the natural share group, which was part of FMI, the Food Market Institute. And I attended a conference one time that was women in the industry. And it was shocking. These were women that owned 
big grocery chains and not all of them by choice. Some of them inherited those chains because there was no male around to fill that role. And so what we found was that these women had the same problems that we did on the natural side. Maybe our scale was a little smaller, but they were dealing with exactly the problems we have, which is how do you infiltrate yourself in a male dominated industry? And what sort of problems do you have in running a business? But there was no difference. It was this great opportunity to share with people that I thought were way bigger than I'd ever be. I love that. So as owner of the whole weedery, like you actually have, you've made buying decisions, if not, if not recently, definitely sometime in the last handful of years. Absolutely. I bought every single thing in this store at one time or another. I'm still directly involved with the buying decisions, just assisting our buyers in looking at new product mix, identifying where there are um, gaps in our store, uh, showing them all the resources that are available to purvey when you're trying to make good buying decisions. Talking about when I made my very first big buy, which was a 10 case buy, it scared the bejeebies out of me. And I was looking at this thinking, why did I ever buy this and how am I going to sell it? And so I understand what it takes to be a buyer and take that first leap of faith when you buy a big case deck. So I encourage them to try it and then to think outside the box for what is going to make that product sell and what can you do to support the role of selling that product, whether today it's social media, which we, of course, didn't even have back then. You know, we were companion selling, but in a different kind of way. Now we can talk very clearly about the attributes about the product and we can meet customers one-on-one. -on -one. We can put that on social media. So the whole platform has changed in how to educate the people. Okay, I got to know. What was it 10 cases of? <laughs> Believe it or not, it was aloe vera. I don't know, what was I thinking? It was insanity. So, you know, we linked it with a lot of things and, you know, aloe vera still sells great to this day. So I know we did our homework. <laughs> oh, I love that. At least it was radically shelf-stable, right? <laughs> Yeah, radically shelf-stable. I've done a few of those things that were not radically shelf-stable, and then you end up doing a great deal of um, sampling and sometimes some really interesting ways to sample and interesting ways to mix something with something, and everybody has an idea, and we took them all and eventually moved those products out too. Just had oh, to be creative. It. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. So I heard you a little bit there, though, also kind of give me insight into a, what I would kind of quantify as your buying philosophy, like take the risk, do the thing. But w what else? Like, let's say you're talking to a brand new buyer, like outside of take the risk, like what else are you going to tell them? Well, you have to know your customers. So you have to work in the aisles for a while. I think that makes a successful buyer. And I think that buyer has to really be attentive to the shelves to understand why something is missing, what where do I find the resources for that gap? They also have to be exposed to the manufacturer's reps that come in. They are a huge part of our business. We are incredibly grateful that they come. We establish really good rapport with them. We treat them right. They treat us right. We learn from them. We can build products. We can expand product lines. We can fill gaps by understanding what they're there to do for us. They can also help us if we're in trouble. So it's a great way. And I think, again, a buyer has to learn what resources are available. And that's the tough part. Now, did you have um, any grocery buyer peers when you got started? Or are you feeling like you kind of just learned your lessons in the aisle? Well, when I worked for another company, yes, there was um, grocery buyers not in the store that I was in. And that store was highly supplement oriented. We had a few groceries here and there and we bought them. Um, when I opened my own store and we expanded to include a great deal of grocery, including perishable, it was a whole new buying experience. And so that's when you learn like 
what would I like to have in the store and why would I think it would sell and how could I tell the story about it? And that was sort of the beginning legs of developing my buying skills. I like that. Like, I am also the consumer. I live in this community and I feel like that is one of the best ways to think about knowing your customer. So we've, we've gone through the buying piece. Like, tell me a little bit about, do you have a, do you have a merchandising philosophy or like a great merchandising win story or even loss? Like, this is what I learned through, I can't believe I put 17 shippers on the floor. Oh, I love shippers. So I can't have enough shippers. So I'm glad you mentioned those. They are fantastic. They're easy peasy to um, sell your product. They've got all the, everything you need to them. But um, merchandising is absolutely the most critical part of the front end of your store. Because bringing the goods in are great, but if you can't figure out how to sell them, merchandise them, explain them, talk about them, promote them, then you've lost the battle already. And I think merchandisers have to be creative and everybody in the store has an idea about what something is good for. We encourage our employees to try products, to be able to sell products, to know what the attributes are about a product so you train them. When we do an end cap, it's fun to talk about why we selected those items. Um, I think Merchandising has to have a great deal of signage. It has to change frequently. It has to be fresh and current. It has to be exciting and colorful. So merchandising is absolutely everything to being a retailer. Oh, I love it. I, I also, too, I love the visual part of this job. You know, there is the, I think, to your point about having buyers spend time in the aisles, there's like, there could be a really big disconnect between the Excel sheet that a broker sent you and actually seeing something on shelf. So I totally appreciate that perspective. Um, all right. Well, if you had one piece of advice to give another woman who was considering a career in the grocery industry in 2023, uh, buyer or otherwise, like what would you, what would you impart? Be confident, go forward with that confidence, have passion about what you're doing, um, spread that those seeds of passion to other people, exchange ideas and information, be willing to admit you could do better and take everybody's ideas and and really just build a better mousetrap. Because you know what? We are women and we can do anything that we set our minds to. And we are the very best multitaskers. I love that so much. Cheryl, I really appreciate you spending some time with me today. When I knew that we were going to do an episode on women in grocery, I knew that you would be my first phone call. Just from the very beginning of meeting you, you are articulate, uh, you are so knowledgeable, and I am so grateful that you chose to do this with me today. So thank you very, very much. And uh, I hope we talk again soon. You're welcome. And remember, you got to love what you do, and I do. I, I hear that. Absolutely. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. I love that interview with you and Cheryl. And the thing that really hit home with me was the the aloe vera buy-up, right? Like how many times as buyers have you like pulled the trigger and then you're like, ooh, was it too much? Am I going to be able to sell through it? Oh, absolutely. Like everyone's got the story of their first big buy. I actually kind of thought it was funny. I had to pull it out of her. Like what skew was it, Cheryl? <laughs> Tell me exactly what, what your first big buy scare was. Yeah. Um, but no, I agree. It's just such a privilege to spend time with her. Mm-hmm. I also, it's like, I know it's the third episode, but how many times are we going to end a Jim Olson spin segment with me just being like, oh, I just love Jim and he packs so much information into such a small segment every month. Thank you, Jim Olson. Right. I, I knew having him a part of this was was going to be gold. Oh, absolutely. And I just, I want to say it one more time because I think that he calls it out in his segment, but women-owned natural food brands represented $21 million in sales 
and saw 12% growth within infra, a rate higher than that of the natural channel. Well, that's amazing. And then just think, what could those numbers be if funding actually matched? Absolutely, you guys. This could be better. So, <laughs> so much better. Totally. Well, Angela, I'm really excited to hear this retail talk. First, a word from our sponsors. My name is Jovial King, founder and owner of Urban Moonshine. We specialize in bitters, tonics, and herbal wellness. We are proud to be a woman-run business. Women are visionaries, and when given the opportunity in capital to lead and build, we thrive. We see some of the most innovative wellness brands are led by women. Women lead in wellness because women are oftentimes the primary caregivers for their children and their families. And a lot of innovation is born from that a need, a necessity, a desire for something to be healthier, easier, and more sustainable. That's what Urban Moonshine was born out of. A need to support the health of my kids, my family, and then in turn, my community. Urban Moonshine is in a period of transition, and I'm excited to announce that we will be reestablishing our roots in Burlington, Vermont. We will be providing regular updates to all our customers through our website, Instagram, and our newsletter, which you can sign up for on our website at urbanmoonshine.com. This is an exciting time with the new rebirth and relaunching process, and we are so happy to share the journey with you. Hi, this is Angela Bozo, Director of Member Programs here at Infra, and I'm happy to kick off a retail talk segment with some other women that work with me. We're going to do a quick round of introductions and then have a conversation about what it is to be a woman in grocery in 2023. Hi, I'm Lauren Bartel. I'm the Wellness Category Manager at Infra. Hi, I'm Jesse Rock. I'm the promotions and merchandising advisory lead at Infra. I'm Sarah Fulton Kerbling. I am the retail marketing lead at Infra. Hi, I am Kim Rout, and I am the snack, chocolate, and shelf staple beverages category manager. So, as I promised you guys, we'll just kick this off with a couple of questions. Anybody have a story that would be kind of specific to being female um, working on the floor or advocating for a brand or anything that they were like, oh, when Angela invited me to this conversation, I was like super excited to tell the following. Well, how about I will tell. I don't have a really great story, but I can talk a little bit about when I worked at the co-op um, and like a lot of co-ops, we started very small and became much bigger over the course of many years. It was very inspiring to be working at the co-ops that I worked at. And I don't know if it's necessarily a co-op thing or if it's a Minneapolis thing. The leadership team at our co-op was 100% ladies. Um, we had a general manager who was female and everyone else who reported to her was also a woman. And so when I started, I was a wellness associate, like I had no power or anything. I didn't live at that level. But as I kind of grew up in and made my way up in the store, um, it was just, I think, probably one of the biggest reasons why I continued working there and continued in the, like a management track was because it was all ladies and it just felt incredibly welcoming. And it didn't ever occur to me that I couldn't do something because I had a lot of really great role models that were already doing it. And that felt really great. That was that's probably why I'm here today speaking about this. Something that popped into my head, too, is just, you know, stepping even outside of the co-ops, the, the natural food and natural wellness industry, there are such a great community. And I have found that women that I've worked with, you know, in 
one or two or three of the past places I've been, you know, we all keep in touch. We all touch base. We share opportunities with each other. You know, I come back in touch with them and we're in different roles and we're in different contexts, but we continue to build those relationships. And I find that to be really unique specifically to the to the female friendships and the female colleagues that I've had. And, you know, people will contact you and say, hey, there's a job opportunity or have you heard about this? Or, you know, can I write you a letter of recommendation? You know, and there's this, like this constant support and it's it's great um, career wise. It also really makes going to work fun. You know, when you're like, oh, I get to talk to so-and-so. I haven't talked to her in three years. You know, I wonder how she's doing. So I just, I love that sense of community. And I think it even extends, you know, I, I feel it a lot in the Twin Cities because of all of the co-ops and because of Infra and NCG here, but I also feel it in the in the national industry, you know, when we go to trade shows or expos and that sort of thing. You see people that you haven't seen in a couple of years and everybody's there, you know, remembering and supporting each other and reaching out. And I just love that. It's funny that you say that, Lauren, because for me, coming from the conventional side, I did have some really strong female mentors, but I also felt like the community was so large and um, very male dominated. So coming over to the natural and organic side, I see it's, it is different and it is more welcoming of, of people, of women, of diversity. And it's, it really is more of a community. And, and I feel that I am supported even though I don't have a natural and organic background. So um, I definitely can resonate with what you're saying, Lauren. I absolutely agree. I told the story before we started this recording about um, feeling so privileged at one point in my career working in a store where the store manager, all the assistant store managers and every department head were all female. And, you know, some of these things are actually notable because we've known for, I don't know, time immemorial that women are the primary grocery shopper. But for so long, it was a very male dominated industry. And there were so many changes that women started to make in the early 80s that really, you know, informed the way that we grocery shop now. I was just reading an article about some of the like coolest cities in the world to go and see like the future of retail. And Mexico City was number one. And the reason it was number one is because they finally started to get leadership from women into the stores and it has revolutionized their food service areas. You know, you have this culture of women making food in traditional culture you know, cultural like options, et cetera. And now they're finally seeing it in stores because they chose to hire women, which I thought was super awesome. But I also love what you guys are talking about in terms of community. I feel the same about the natural food side. I mean, here we are, um, it's March. So most of the people listening to this have gone to Expo West at this point or will be going to have decided to go to Expo West at some point in their career. And we will all run into multiple women that we know. Yeah, something that I wanted to mention too, um, is Jovial from Urban Moonshine had mentioned that, you know, women tend to disproportionately be caregivers. And so how does that impact the products and the brands they create? I think that's really interesting to think about. And it's it's fantastic that it's finally happening a little bit more because, you know, women are the primary consumers for, you know, most probably most of our member stores. Women-owned brands really need to get out there and get some support because they're making the products that are appealing and, and creating the solutions for the people that are shopping at the stores. You know, and I think there's been this lag in terms of meeting those needs and creating those solutions. So I'm really excited that we're seeing so many more female-owned brands coming up. 
All right, Lauren, so I'm listening to you and I'm thinking to myself about all of these kind of stereotypical or maybe I'll just call them tropes, right? I think we have uh, founder tropes in the marketplace. So you have like the like the Guayaki story. You've got the two guys and they met at college and they went to South America and they discovered a Ramate and they canned it and brought it back. And it's amazing. But I also think you have quite a few like women tropes, like the mom entrepreneur, right? I couldn't find the food I wanted to feed my kids, so I made it. <laughs> like, and I can, I can think off the top of my head of like ten stories like that. You know, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. My kids had sensitive skin, so I created a whole lot of body care products. That, yeah, I feel like that's the beginning of so many brands. You're totally right. Yeah, Denise from Partake, she was on this podcast, and it was 100. percent And oh my gosh, she said something about her daughter. And um, I have kids with food allergies, but I had never thought of it as an accessibility issue until she said it that way, and I was like. Oh, you're right. We have to bring food to school. Like, so it was, yeah, it was great. I feel like this was a good time to drop the statistic that we were just shared with by um, Jim Olson from Spins. I'm just going to read it because I can't riff it <laughs> very well. But he says, according to Spins data for the most recent 52 week period, women owned natural food brands represented $21 million in sales and saw 12% growth within infra, a rate higher than that of the natural channel. So, that's just awesome. I think we could celebrate that a little bit, especially coming from infra. For sure. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. You know, I would also ask, you know, we're talking about being a caregiver, being a parent, um, taking care of your family. Like, so if we know that women tend to be disproportionately caregivers, how, um, you know, how does a customer service in-person industry like grocery support the work-life balance? so that they're attracting, retaining diverse staff? You know, I think that's a really important question that retailers should be asking themselves because I think there's a really big benefit to having a diverse staff. You know, a lot of times, like I worked in the wellness department for years and years, people would come in and they they wanted to talk to somebody they could relate to. You know, they had questions, whether it was about their diet, about like a medical diagnosis or a I mean, a rash, God forbid. <laughs> like They wanted to talk to somebody they trusted. And a lot of times that meant like somebody that they could relate to, somebody that maybe looked like them, you know. And so it was really important to have a wide range of, of people, ages, genders, you know, backgrounds, everything. I think that's really critical. Any final thoughts? Anything you think that would be important for, you know, buyers to hear? I think, you know, the thing that pops into my head is if you are a store owner or a operations manager or anyone who's in charge of a large group of people, like take a look at who is working for you. And if you don't have, you know, a close to equal number of women, why is that? What do you need to change? I fully agree with that, that statement, Lauren. And I also think, you know, as I look at um, grocery and has the industry really caught up to our world now, you know, and what does that look like? And in some ways, yes. However, there's still a ways to grow. Um, I think that there's more diversity and women in roles um, within the store level. But then if you look at, you know, maybe a corporate office level, we still have a big ways to go. And, and that is something that hopefully that will change. Um, it started to change, but hopefully it will continue to change because women do belong in all places where decisions are made. Like my last, my parting thought um, really is like, yeah, as the whole industry and even just the natural products industry as a whole, like has work to do. But from my my little slice of experience with co-ops and with infra stores, I do see a lot of, and you know, I spoke to this earlier, like have experienced a ton of strong 
great female leaders and for the you know I haven't been to every in for store but I've been to a lot and there's again a really good representation of female leadership and so I just you know shout out to that and the folks kind of on the ground running all this it's it's great we're seeing we're seeing progress that has been made for a while I think it's interesting being in we've got five ladies on the call here and at least three of us have a wellness background. And I think that a lot of the industry is like there are pockets of like female dominated or female centric, you know, employees or founders or brands. And just happens that wellness and marketing are two spaces that tend to have concentrations of women. So I think that's really interesting to look at. And then from the you know, what can a retailer or brand do perspective, I think it's really important to think about how are you educating customers about women-owned brands? Are you calling that attribute out at shelf level? Are you sharing these brand stories in your social media? Are you featuring those producers? Are you educating your teams and your staff about you know, the founder stories or why they made these products and, you know, just telling those stories because so much of the consumer these days who supports the natural and organic industry do so because they want to support brands that align with their values. And they can't necessarily do that unless they know. And so it's our jobs to continuously be telling our stories. If you're a women-owned company, whether that's a retailer or a brand, like shout about it and tell that story. And even if you think you've told it a hundred times, tell it one more time because that will help promote what you're doing and and show, you know, other women that things are happening and changes are happening and it can be a self-fulfilling cycle. I love that so much. We all know that there are too many decisions to make in the grocery store. And if I'm looking at two products next to one another and I need some way to delineate one from the other, I would absolutely buy the woman-owned brand if I knew the story over the other brand. I really appreciate all of your time today, ladies. Thank you so much for another successful episode of Retail Talk. And that was the Retail Talk segment with me and the rad women of Infra that I referenced earlier. Again, talk about a segment where we could have just kept talking for 40 minutes. But what I really appreciated about that was we had a multitude of voices in the room (laughs) from different backgrounds, both conventional, natural, and really very wellness-centric too in some instances. And we touched on women actually working in the grocery store, women being the primary shopper, and women brands on the shelf, all in just like, you know, what was pretty a compact segment. And yeah. so, yes, ladies, thank you again. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was awesome. I really appreciate what you guys brought to that conversation. I mean, I'm really excited to dig in and share my interview with Nicole Dawes from Nixie. I thought one of the funny things that, that she brought up was that her son, Stephen Dawes, just got signed as a recording artist. And so he's all out on YouTube, on Spotify. You can listen to Stephen Dawes. I'm not going to spoil it, search him, listen to it. He has a wonderful voice, but I got some more hints to drop after the interview. So I think we should get right into that. Let's do it. But first, a word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Margaret. I'm the CEO and founder at Nuts for Cheese. I started Nuts for Cheese with a simple goal. Use the highest quality ingredients to create the world's best tasting gourmet vegan cheeses. Our cheeses are 100% dairy free and they're certified organic. 
They're also made with whole food ingredients. We don't cut corners. That means no starches, no gums, and no fillers, just real goodness. We use traditionally inspired cheese making techniques and we are committed to all things delicious. These are artisanal products. They're handcrafted and fermented to perfection. They're ready to be enjoyed from our black garlic to our unbelievable to our super blue. There's a nuts for cheese for every cheese lover out there. Spread it on a cracker, add it to a recipe, or make a show-stopping plant-based charcuterie board. Look for our distinctive triangle-shaped packaging. You'll see it in the plant-based dairy section of a store near you. Pick up some Nuts for Cheese today and stay cheesy. You can find us online at Nuts for Cheese on all social channels and at www.nutsforcheese.com. I'm excited to welcome Nicole Dawes, founder and CEO of Nixie Sparkling Water and founder of Late July to the buyer's desk. Hey, Nicole, how are you doing today? Great. I am so excited to be here. I think that you already know this, but uh, I absolutely love working with everyone at Nixie does. And I'm just honestly flattered and honored that you invited me. Yes. And we're excited for you to be here. And everyone at Infra absolutely loves working with you and your company. And we know about your love for Infra. And it makes total sense with a mom who owned a natural food store and a father who owned a successful potato chip company. You grew up immersed in this industry. It seems like natural food and entrepreneurship is really in your DNA. So I just got to know, what was that upbringing like? Well, one of my earliest memories is sitting on my mother's natural food store counter, begging her to let me eat a carob covered rice cake as my like one sweet snack of the day. <laughs> and um, honestly, you know, it, there was a lot of wonderful things about it. I really feel lucky to have had a mother that taught me so much about, you know, where food comes from and why it matters. I mean, there's a lot of things that I, you know, I have like a negative Pavlovian reaction to to seeing today. Um, Aduki beans are one of them. I, I've never really acquired a taste for them. <laughs> um, you know, my mother was so intent on teaching me also how to cook macrobiotic that she, you know, one day told me she was so excited we were going to go to this mother-daughter summer camp. And I was like, oh, that sounds so much fun. This is great. You know, we never get to do these kind of things. But it was actually... Um, Kushi Institute, macrobiotic, <laughs> like oh. cooking camp. Um, and so we went up there and, and you know, got, I got to, I was a little kid and I got to learn about how to cook macrobiotic food. So, you know, there was a lot of wonderful parts of growing up with natural food as in my blood. And uh, there were some other things that I learned. I looked at the products of my mother's natural food store back in the seventies and it was just, you know, brown cardboard, brown cardboard, like nothing was <laughs> exciting. I mean, no one thinks about deliciousness when they think about those old 1970s natural food stores. And part of what I, I think you take the combination of a mother with a natural food store and a father with a potato chip company, you get me, which is somebody who wants to combine those two things. And, you know, I, I think early on, I realized that, you know, part of what my mission was going to be was to make sustainable, organic, natural foods, exciting and delicious. <laughs> so actually I worked at my dad's potato chip company and I tried to launch awesome. a line of organic potato chips way back before it was, you know, they, I even could. And that right. was the impetus for me starting late July, actually. Awesome. Well, that's that's really cool to hear about. You know, I, I think you've done a great job. I have late July products all throughout my house. I am drinking a strawberry hibiscus Nixie right now. Um, which I can see you doing. But I, I want to know, what what was the difference between Late July and Nixie and that experience of starting that company up 
you know, with your father and then going out on your own with Nixie? Well, on one hand, it was significantly easier because I was able to keep bring a lot of my team from late July into Nixie, um, okay. which I mean, you know, anybody who's run a business or had a business knows that your team and building the team is one of the most difficult things that you do. So uh-huh. you know, being able to have a team that, you know, already knew each other, we, we worked together um, really closely. So we just, you know, that was a wonderful part of starting Nixie. However, we hit shelves about two months before the pandemic started. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, obviously that was significantly more difficult. You know, if I, you know, if I had a crystal ball and could have known what we were getting into, I mean, you know, who knows what I would have done. But I mean, launching and then having the entire country shut down. I mean, on top of dealing with what all of our retail partners were struggling with, you know, you had supply chain challenges, unlike things you've ever, never seen in my lifetime. Right. You know, the one thing about it that I tell myself in hindsight, you know, we had all sorts of problems at late July. I mean, just giant problems starting out. I mean, you know, things that, I mean, we'd have to do a whole separate podcast to talk about everything that went wrong. <laughs> at late July. I'll take you up on that. Right. But <laughs> the difference there was it was only happening to late July. So whatever catastrophe we were dealing with, every other company in the country wasn't also dealing with. Whereas during the pandemic, you know, we were all kind of in that boat together. You know, everybody was struggling. Everybody was dealing with the same challenges. So there was a lot more empathy, I think, that we all had for each other. So even though, I mean, it was definitely incredibly challenging starting a company during the pandemic, but there was a real sense of community and, you know, people really genuinely cared about mm-hmm. what everyone was experiencing. So it was kind of nice because we weren't alone. Um, so despite the fact that it was obviously difficult, there was that that kind of carried us through, I think. Plus, we made the decision during that time to not pivot to direct-to-consumer and to focus on our retailers. Like we never changed our strategy. And that's something I'm actually really proud of. Well, and that's great to hear. And I, I know our members really appreciate that. Um, so I, I want to go back to late July a little bit because late July was one of the first brands to carry that uh, USDA organic seal. And now I'm starting to hear you're saying there's uh, some of the challenge you guys have run, run into. Uh, I'm wondering if being one of the first brands um, to have that seal might have added to some of those challenges. But but what I'm really interested in our last episode was around regenerative organic certified. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Like, is that a potential new gold standard? You know, it's so interesting because, I mean, obviously I got into this line of work because I care about the environment. I care about climate uh-huh. change. I, you know, I, I truly believe that sustainable food is the future and we all have a responsibility to like make our grocery stores as sustainable as we possibly can. I mean, it's like what guides me every single day. But having been in this business for so long, and having struggled with awareness around the USDA organic seal, I mean, I served on the board of the trade decision. Like I've done, you know, I've been kind of on the front lines of this for a long time. My biggest concern is consumer confusion. Uh-huh. And, you know, I, like I struggled when the, when the non-GMO project seal came out because, yeah. you know, I was just trying to get people to understand what organic meant. And now I'm dealing with a whole nother type of certification that is, you know, just creating more confusion. And, Uh you know, I struggle every day with people not even knowing the difference between natural and organic. And, you know, I mean, I've basically been doing this my entire conscious life, you know, between my mom's food store in late July. And, you know, it's sometimes it can be a little disheartening because, 
you know, you're just having to do so much education all the time. Definitely. So I think that, you know, there's no one on earth that's going to always, I mean, the brands obviously that are involved with regenerative organic, um, you know, some of the organic, the OG organic brands are getting valley, you know, I mean, these are the people who are every day wake up and try to do the right thing. They try uh-huh. to do right by the earth. They try to do right by humans and our consumption and animals. And I think that would be my only watch out is just how do we accomplish all of this and continue moving to a place that we all, like we all have the same goals, but without creating more consumer confusion on shelf and really building up the brands that are doing the right thing and kind of helping consumers understand, you know, how to take steps to make better choices. And, you know, what the difference between all natural, organic, non-GMO, organic, regenerative, organic, organic. I mean, I just, that I think that's my biggest, and I don't have the answer. Like, I do want that to be the gold standard, but I don't want it to be the gold standard at the expense of the USDA certified. Agreed. Yeah, it's it's a complicated discussion, that's for sure. So yeah, you'll have to listen to our uh, February episode because we, we get into that really deep. I just wanted to bring that in since since you were one of the the first brands, you know, late July carrying that organic seal. Um, so Nixing is an interesting name, actually. When I was working at the natural food store uh, before coming to Infra, we brought in Nixie on the shelves right before the pandemic, like you mentioned. And I was like, wow, that's kind of an interesting name. And I know for me, you know, when I'm naming projects or naming my freelance business or any bands that I've been in, I do a deep dive into all different kinds of names, what it can mean. Wondering if you did the same for Nixie. Did you pick it because it sounds like your name or are you really into Germanic mythology? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> actually both. But um, I, I mean, I, I go by Nikki. I mean, most of my close family and friends call me Nikki. And, you know, it's actually something my late father, like if I meet anybody who I don't know really well, but they call me Nikki and they're in the food business, it was probably somebody that my late father <laughs> introduced me to. And that's why they're using that name. So it has a lot of you know, I, I love nicknames and I, you know, I think it, it it's, it's a meaningful name for me, but I didn't want yeah. to name it after myself. Cause that's not really my vibe per se. Yeah. Um, and you know, a Nixie, as you mentioned, is another name for a mermaid, more, a more mischievous mermaid who maybe doesn't have the <laughs> best backstory, <laughs> but I do love, um, the connection that the word Nixie has to water. And, yeah. you know, it's um, so I think what I loved about the combination of both my nickname, Nikki, and this, you know, um, kind of fun, sprite, little bit mischievous Nixie <laughs> that exists in this folklore, um, you know, that sort of landed us in the perfect spot between, an, you know, a memorable name that had meaning, but also, you know, was trademarkable and unique enough and it kind of hit all those boxes for us. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely love it. And and that's, I think, the trick of coming up with a name is hitting all those boxes, not being too straightforward, but having that story behind it is super fun. Yeah, and I, I grew up on the coast. So I, I mean, water is a very important part of my life. So I wanted some connection to that, especially given the fact that we are a sparkling water company. Well, that's great. Finally, I want to know, with all that you've learned, and you've kind of uh, alluded to this in an, an earlier question, what would you tell 2001 Nicole setting out? What advice would you give to an aspiring female entrepreneur looking to start their own business? You know, I, I think one of the most important things that you can do is surround yourself with people you trust. And I think that extends to the investment partners that you take on. 
because, oh. you know, there are going to be bumps in the road. And I mean, that's the only thing guaranteed about the entrepreneurial journey, that it is not going to be a smooth one. <laughs> there are going to be, <laughs> you know, whether it's a pandemic or, I mean, when I started late July, um, you know, there were, I mean, like I said, it's, we, we definitely don't have time to go, but there was some real catastrophes that occurred in those early days. And so who you're partnering with to, to for your money. And if you're a mission-driven business, you know, you need to make sure that you're well-funded um, because there are going to be things that are more expensive. There are going to be choices that you make because they're better for the earth or, you know, humans or for, you know, that maybe are going to take longer to have a return on. Um, uh -huh. And so you need investor partners that believe in your mission too, but that also believe in you. So, you know, that's one of the, the best pieces of advice that I think I would give my young self. And, and obviously I still tell myself today is, you know, when you're partnering with somebody, you know, you need to get to know them too. It's not just about, you know, where can you get this investment from? It's about who is the right partner? Um, because there's nothing that will hurt a, a female entrepreneur, a mission-driven brand faster than the wrong partner. I, you know, honestly, the one thing else I would say to my young self is, and this applies very directly to, to infra stores, you know, when it comes to that, surround yourself with people you trust, that also applies to your, to your retail partners, you oh. know, really back the people who believe in you and who have a shared mission with you. And, you know, that's one of the reasons, like, I've always been so grateful throughout Late July and Nixie for our partnership with Infra, because, you know, we really do have the exact same goals. Like, we are all in this for the same reason. I mean, like, support the, the retailers that support you and believe in your mission. That's so great. And, and we really appreciate your support as well. And it's definitely mutual. Well, thanks, Nicole, for your time today. It's been great getting to know you and having you on the show. Take care. Thank you. Chris, I'm going to say it again. I love that interview with Nicole from Nixie. Mm -hmm. Speaking as someone who spent a pretty substantial part of her career talking to consumers about organic, there were just so many parts of that interview where I'm like nodding along like, yes, that is exactly right. Mm -hmm. No, and I loved uh, I loved her response to the Germanic mythology question talking about the Nixies. That was great. Yes. Well, just like the thought that she has clearly put into it and just her whole background and story, that was that was phenomenal. Yeah. And and I think the one thing that came up after the recording, you know, the story she talked about growing up in her mom's store, her cousin Rory owns that store. And now they have, I think it's three stores and they're Infra members. So how cool is that? Uh, so cool. Yeah, I had to look up in the Infra directory and there they were. But I really am excited for what we have coming up in our next episode with the theme of sustainability. I have a really cool interview with the Lundbergs, Frida and Bryce, father-daughter duo. So yeah, I can't wait for you guys to hear that interview. And I know you have a really good interview with one of the members coming up. Absolutely. I'm talking to uh, Jason, who is one of the buyers, and Stephanie, who is the sustainability manager at Jimbo's oh. San Diego. They are in one of the founding members of Infra and very excited for that conversation as well, but also just excited to devote a whole episode to sustainability. There's so many ways we could look at it, and I think it's great that we tackled it in general yeah no i agree i can't wait for that one but we just finished this episode so we are all done see you guys later bye have a good one well folks that's it for this episode of the buyer's desk 
Thanks to Angela for co-hosting. And I appreciate the contributions from Infra staff, Infra members, and Infra vendors for helping to make this episode happen. I appreciate all of you who listened this far, and I hope to see you next month for another episode.